Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. He was a big presence in my life, but I always felt that I scarcely knew him. He passed a few years ago, and I'm still not sure if I ever found out what it was like to have a dad. He gave me no advice and rarely spoke to me in any meaningful way about anything much. But he introduced me to the Marx Brothers and Victor Borga and daft Dundalk humour. Dundalk people love to hear your news, he'd say, especially if it's bad. And he gave me Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury and James Bond and Just William Books and introduced me to Dylan Thomas's play Under Milk Wood. Once he came home from the US where he'd been directing plays or lecturing in colleges, activities he did most summers, and handed me an LP the Allman Brothers Band live at the Fillmore East. It became my favourite music of all time. When I asked him how he had chosen the album, he said he'd asked the clerk in the record store what was the best LP around. When I was 16, about to turn 17, he brought me to America for a summer to Carleton College, St. Paul, Minnesota, where he was lecturing in Irish drama. I don't know why he did that. We rarely discussed anything. However... For a few months in the USA, he was my companion. He opened gates for me into strange and beguiling worlds. I watched him rehearsing student actors for a performance of O'Casey's Shadow of a Gunman. He saw theatre in the classroom or on stage in a local hall or on Broadway where he won an Emmy for Borstal Boy as essentially the same artistic experience. I was left with a lifelong fascination for America, particularly its music and writers, though not despite my father's obvious passion for it, the theatre. Maybe in my own way, I was tilting against him. He had his territory. I wanted my own. After America, I was certain that there were only two things in his life he truly cared about. He loved theatre and he loved my mom. Basically, he cast his kids as extras in his love stories. If we were good, he gave us walk-on parts or allowed us to deliver a few lines on the stage of his life. His children were forced to find their own platforms upon which to write our lives. After my leaving search results, he didn't want me to go to college. Instead, he insisted I leave home and find a job. The previous summer, he had taken me with him to the USA. Now here he was trying to throw me out. My mother talked him into allowing me to go to UCD. Thereafter, I felt like an imposter at home. By qualifying for third level, I had offended him. He'd never gone to college. His father had died suddenly when he was 12. At 17, he had left home to work on the border as a customs man. Maybe he just didn't know how to deal with the situation. Or maybe he didn't want to spend dosh on his firstborn's college years. Who knows? Anyway, I went to UCD and didn't see much of him until I graduated in 1977. A ceremony he attended, where he seemed, in his own undemonstrative way, proud of me. He still wanted me to get a job. Instead, I formed a punk rock and roll band. I think about the bronze bust of him that's plonked in the green room of the Abbey Theatre. It used to greet people in the foyer, sometimes with a cigarette butt stuck in its mouth by a mischievous actor. But someone had it moved. He would surely have approved of a residency in the green room where he'd be surrounded by actors, his true spiritual family. But there is no name visible on the bust and few actors nowadays know who he is. He smoked at home, but he didn't inhale. The cigarette bobbled in his mouth as he worked on a manuscript while watching TV. We stared as the ash pillar grew and waited for it to topple, but it never did. 
He lived a creative life for as long as he could. When his health failed and he couldn't read anymore and couldn't work with actors or create theatre works, he slowly let go. One day I helped to put him into an ambulance and he went to hospital and never came out. His short-term memory was gone, or rather it seemed to vanish whenever it suited him. I visited him when I could. On one visit he looked at me, his diminished, baldy self so odd and vulnerable. Oh, Ferdiot, there you are. You're a dutiful son, he said. Then he paused and took a breath as he considered something. You know, these father and son things, they almost never work out. But sometimes... His voice trailed off. After a few moments, he lapsed back into memory loss. I never found out what he was about to say. Maybe I should have asked him. Or maybe I was content to settle for the nearest thing to a good review that I ever got from him. Beautiful women I've ever seen, and that's not saying much for you. Captain Spaulding, Rittenhouse Manor is entirely at your disposal. Well, I'm certainly grateful for this magnificent washout, a turnout, and uh, now I'd like to say a few words. Hello? I must be going. I cannot say I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my sake, you must stay. If you should go away, you spoil this party. I am through it. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay in the summer. Epiphanies can occur in the unlikeliest places. The Magi had theirs in a stable in Bethlehem. James Joyce had one on Dollyman Strand. And I had mine in Chach Bijined, in Cornerum, in the Connemar Gaeltacht, when, at the age of 16, a truth was revealed to me. David Bowie was definitely more talented than Shawadiwadi, and possibly even Slade. Earlier attempts to appreciate Bowie had failed. When I was 13, a friend whose veneration of Bowie bordered on the religious had subjected me to endless hours of his music, in the hope of converting me. Unfortunately, pocket money being scarce, he owned only one record, Starman. So summer afternoons were spent in his front room in Clontarf, listening and re-listening to this one single on an ancient mono record player. I liked the melody, but the lyrics were beyond me. Just what did Bowie mean when he sang came back like a slow voice on a wave of phase. That weren't no DJ, that was hazy cosmic jive. And flipping the record over to the B-side, to Suffragette City, just made things worse. At one point, Bowie complains here that a mellow-thighed chick has put his spine out of place. I was an innocent lad. A late developer would be a kind way of putting it. And while I had sympathy for Bowie's back trouble, I just couldn't imagine how any girl, mellow-thighed or otherwise, could put out your spine. I wanted to like Bowie, but his hazy cosmic jives and mellow thighs meant he would be forever a mystery. I renounced Bowie and all his works. Being pretentious and insufferable, I declared that I could not embrace what I did not understand. Three years later, in the summer of 1975, a coach bus pulled up outside Chach Bijined, 
a few miles west of Inverwan, and deposited me, five classmates and our bags on the roadside. We were apprehensive. Three weeks of Irish language and culture lay ahead. Someone's older brother had warned us that lengthy exposure to Cayley music would drive us mad. He had urged us to bring our own music. I volunteered to supply the cassette player. Tom said he would raid his brother's collection of cassette tapes and bring enough Slade and Shawadi Wadi to keep us going for three weeks. Bidgey Ned, our kindly banatee, greeted us and showed us to our room. As we unpacked, she looked disapprovingly at my cassette player. Kane sort kyo the target, shannos. Tom reached into his bag and rummaged around. He rummaged a bit more, a look of panic on his face. He upended the entire contents of his bag on the bed, but we had already guessed the awful truth. He had left all the music back in Dublin. We were facing the unimaginable prospect of three weeks in the Gaeltacht with a tape player, but no tapes. Bidgey Ned just laughed and left us to our recriminations. However, an hour later, she knocked on the door. Somebody left this behind them last month. I don't know what kind of thing it is at all. She threw a cassette tape on the bed. It was Bowie's Hunky Dory. My heart sank. Later that first night, we climbed into bed, exhausted after our journey and the exhilaration of our first Cayley, and turned out the lights. Someone pressed play on the cassette machine and the epiphany began. Actually, it came in stages if such a thing is possible. It was the only album we had for three weeks. But over that time, night by night, song by song, Hunky Dory became as important a part of our nighttime ritual as the Cayleys, Walking Girlfriend's Home or Bidgey Ned Scones. Listening in the dark to Changes or the Bewley Brothers, we slowly learned to reject the false idols that were slayed, and we began to walk in the light of the thin white duke. Happiness can survive in many forms, and one of them is the memory of six school friends drifting off to sleep together in a room that faces east over the fields of Kernarone, listening to life on Mars. Beyond the fields is the sea, and then the hills of Clare. Bidgey Ned is below in the kitchen, baking brown bread, and Bowie is singing that Rule Britannia is out of bounds to his mother, his dog and clowns. I haven't the faintest idea what he means, but I'm no longer the least bit concerned. His lyrics have almost become sacred mysteries, for in Choch Bidgey Ned, I have finally learned to embrace what I don't understand. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen 
Dame Diana Rigg was in her late 70s when she quoted to an interviewer a notice she received from a New York drama critic, and it wasn't a recent one. In 1972, the critic in question, who shall remain nameless here because he deserves to be consigned to the dustbin of theatrical history, wrote of the divine Miss Rigg that she was built like a brick mausoleum with insufficient flying buttresses. And yes, he was referring to her, well, mammaried lands. Miss Rigg was playing the part of Eloise in Ronald Miller's Tony Award-winning play Abelard and Eloise. It was based on the true-life, gruesome story of a 12th-century French monk, Abelard, who tutored a beautiful and scholarly orphan, Eloise. They fell in love, she became pregnant, and her guardian uncles, shocked to their charitable Christian corps, had Abelard abducted. They castrated him, and he was confined to a monastery for the rest of his life. Eloise was also confined in a convent, also for the rest of her life. She actually went on to found an order of nuns. You can't keep a tough woman down, as Miss later Dame Diana Rigg would go on to prove in the 20th century. The play Abelard and Eloise, with the Australian actor Keith Michel in the former role, became notorious because it contained the first recorded nude scene on an international stage. Hence, the American critics' comment on Dame Diana. For those more familiar with television than live theatre, Diana Rigg was already famous as Emma Peel, the leather catsuit-wearing nemesis of all evil in The Avengers. In 1971, already in her 30s, she played Eloise to serious acclaim, and her performance in New York, despite the acid commentary on her figure, gained her a Tony nomination. It was well-deserved, as I can attest, because I saw the production, nudity and all, during its London run. Nowadays, there would probably have been calls for an intimacy coach during rehearsals. Diana Rigg is dead, but I can well imagine her reaction to that. The scene in question had the two entering from either side of the stage, nude and standing far apart, each within a pool of brilliant light, the set of a pastoral scene dimly lit behind them. Utterly still, they discussed a philosophical point, then Eloise moved. Stretching out her hand, she said quietly, Love me, my love. Curtain. It was exquisite. Bizarrely, for it was a matinee performance, there seemed to be a preponderance of nuns in the audience munching on the then still-available afternoon tea served in your seat. And I can attest that Miss Riggs' body in no way resembled a brick mausoleum with or without flying buttresses. Indeed, I admit to examining her physical dimensions rather than Mr. Michelle's, looking jealously for some fault and failing to find one, damn it. And I can well understand why the vicious sneer still rankled with her in old age, as she recalled being the first to get my knickers down on stage. There have been many more such instances, some of them admittedly pointlessly gratuitous, others artistically relevant, even on the holy bastion of the Irish stage. We even grew up enough for on-stage nudity not even to be mentioned in the press, good or bad, 
and theatre-goers would see nude scenes on Dublin stages several times a year. Things weren't so far advanced, or some might claim, indecent outside the capital, and I recall a production in comparatively recent years of an adaptation of Edna O'Brien's The Country Girls in a town I shan't name, where the nude pivotal scene between the young Kate and the much older Mr Gentleman left the male actor standing like a lemon with his family jewels on display, while the actress playing Kate wore a demure pink petticoat almost reaching her knees. And in the original, now iconic production of Sebastian Barry's The Steward of Christendom, Donald McCann was briefly seen in the nude, standing pathetically in character as the confused old man hands across his genitals as he is measured for a new suit. Owen Rowe played it slightly differently, but almost as touchingly, in the recent production, in a filthy set of drooping long johns. There was a flutter of publicity for the Abbey Theatre in 2000 when they staged Frank McGuinness's adaptation of the Spanish classic The Barbaric Comedies. The original Ramon de Valle-Entlan epic runs for 16 hours on stage, but McGuinness reduced it to six hours and it premiered at that year's Edinburgh Festival where it won the major award before reaching the Abbey's own stage. There was blue murder among the UK media, and even now I suspect that the ruckus had more to do with an Irish production beating home work rather than the depiction of both nudity and sex on stage. At home, the publicity roused a certain editor, no longer with us, not famed for his attendance at theatre, to demand that I find out about it all for inclusion in my critique. He had to hand it to them for being able to, and I quote, do it night after night on demand on the public stage. He wouldn't accept that it was what was called acting. And I had to call the production office and ask someone to confirm officially that indeed it was acting. I thought the press officer of the time would never stop laughing. And I saw her point of view. And as a colleague in the said newspaper suggested, perhaps the editor needed to get out more. But at least nobody suggested that there were intimacy coaches telling the actors where to put their hands and asking all present if they felt safe. Look at the king, the king, the king! The king is in the altogether, but altogether, the altogether, he's altogether as naked as the day that he was born. The king is in the altogether, but altogether, they altogether, it's altogether the very least the king has ever worn. Call the court physician, call an intermission, his majesty is wide open to ridicule and scorn. The king is in the altogether, but altogether, they altogether, he's altogether as naked as the day that he was born. And it's altogether too chilly a In January, They leave again, my children, returning to Europe like Irish monks to lead emigrant lives. But their glow remains in the house for weeks. I think of those who have departed. My mother died one Christmas. And those who have arrived, a new grandson. Families have a way of contracting and expanding. In January 2010, in Montreal, a mother lay dying while her family around her bed sang her into eternal slumber. Kate McGarrigal was the youngest of three sisters, 
born in Quebec to Irish-Canadian parents. She grew up surrounded by her parents' music and when she was a student, she and her sister Anna became the folk duo known as the McGarrigal Sisters. They wrote and sang songs which reflected their young lives and our lives too. Some say a heart is just like a wheel. If you bend it, you can't mend it. My love for you is like a sinking ship and my heart is on that ship out in mid-ocean. We could all relate to that. The sisters' harmonies and instrument playing were natural and delicious and they involved their parents and other sister Jane in some renditions. It was easy to imagine them around a log fire on a snowy Quebec winter's evening. In the 70s, I admired their style, not only in music, but their dress sense of flowing skirts and loose long hair. It was due to their own determination that their image remained unchanged by record producers, some of whom wanted to fashion them into a pop act and promote them on the American market. Kate married the American singer Loudon Wainwright III and had two children, Rufus and Martha. And because the McGarrigals had always written about their lives, much of the acrimonious divorce which ensued between Kate and Loudon made its way into the public domain. Loudon also wrote about it, and subsequently Rufus and Martha have been honest about their father in songs. Kate and Anna stopped touring while their children were young, but continued to write, and their songs were covered by singers such as Linda Ronstad and Lou Harris. Kate's song, I Eat Dinner, is one of the most poignant and honest tales of life after divorce and children grown. I eat leftovers with mashed potatoes, no more candlelight, no more romance, no more small talk when the hunger's gone. But the sense of family continued and the singing continued. Rufus says it was because his grandmother, Kate's mother, always insisted on a session of songs when they visited her on a Sunday. The McGarrigal sisters took up their touring careers again in the 90s with albums such as Heartbeats Accelerating and Matapedia. Later, in their second French album, La Vache qui pleure, Kate and Anna thanked their daughters, Martha et Lily, pour la voix d'ange. Voices of angels, indeed. Much to my delight, one of my angels gifted me the McGarrigal's Christmas CD in the year of its release, 2005. My husband had been a long-time fan of the Canadian sisters, but now my children were pulling out old vinyls like Dancer with Bruised Knees and the first album, Kate and Anna McGarrigal, and buying me new CDs that they could play too. It was around this time that the McGarrigal family came to Vicker Street in Dublin for a gig that was as informal and nostalgic as a family gathering in Grandma's in Quebec. Kate played accordion, Anna banjo, Rufus piano, Martha guitar, Jane and Lily vocals. All sang individually and together in harmony. Several years later, with my children gone and the McGarrigal Wainwrights no longer dependent on parents, the charming album of lullabies, Songs in the Dark, was sent to me by one of my sons. Here, Martha sings together with her half-sister, Lucy Wainwright Roach, in an act of family blending and reconciliation between the two daughters of Loudon, where the girls pay tribute to their mothers 
by singing lullabies learned at their mother's knees. Like living organisms, families grow, mutate, change, regenerate, never staying the same, but sometimes benefiting from having a strong epicentre, like Rufus and Martha's granny. I hope our home provides a port in a storm for our wandering offspring and a solid route for young grandchildren. And to complete the Quebecois musical story, there is now a new branch. Kate's son, Rufus, has a daughter with Leonard Cohen's daughter, Lorca. Well, if she hasn't been born with a golden voice, I don't know who has. There is something lovely about being met at a train station. It is especially lovely for me when the train station is London Euston at rush hour and the welcoming young man towering head and shoulders above the crowd is my eldest son Owen. It is my first visit since he started his new job in London, though it is not my first time to be in this train station with him. The last time was on my antenatal outing when I was six months pregnant with him. Now he, soon to be a father himself, is the one being protective, as I, after the calm of my life in Donegal, feel frazzled being among so many people. In the busy Euston station, I remember my son as a nine-year-old in a similar crush in a remote train station in northwest China, when our travels together had become more adventurous. There, he spotted a sign on the door of an empty, comfortable waiting room in the otherwise jam-packed station. The sign said, Reserved for soldiers and mothers with sons. He was delighted with our eligibility for this special treatment and bewildered by my refusal to avail of it. He could not know how that chilling pairing of mothers, sons and soldiers brought back for me the anxiety I had felt when he was born. His birth coincided with the Gulf War, the first war brought to us live on our TV screens. During night feeds I, sleep deprived and emotional, was drawn like a moth to flame to watch red lines of tracer bombs zigzagging across the screen. I wanted to swaddle him in protective love from the crazy world I had brought him into. But there was already the evidence of his own strong life force in the surprising strength of his grip as his tiny fingers closed around mine. I felt the strength of that grip four years later as he clung to my hand at his first classroom door. But... I knew that this new world of school marked the end of my too brief time of being the centre of his universe. My star, as that of all mothers inevitably must, fell out of orbit 
and he started to make his own way in the world. On that same trip to China, it is his sense of omnipotence I remember most when, on the Great Wall, he fully believed that if the wall could be seen from space, then so could he. I was unable to protect that sense of invincibility when, a few years later, he saw over and over again aeroplanes flying into the Twin Towers. I could no longer scoop him in my arms, kiss it better and make everything okay. Instead, I read him his favourite Dr Seuss story, Oh, the Places You'll Go. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the guy who'll decide where to go. When, in what seemed like the blink of an eye, he decided to go to college in Belfast, I was relieved that it was a very different city to the ghettoised one of bombs, bullets and no-go areas I myself had known as a student there in the 1970s. I wanted to show him all the places where the ghost of my younger self lingered, but I didn't. It was time for him to start making his own memories of the vibrant open city he crisscrossed on his bike, going where the music was and where there were others speaking a language, foreign to me, of capos, telecasters and preamps. I have watched him graduate from pat cake to Pokemon to poker and me from Mama to mum, to an exasperated mother, as his knowledge outgrew mine and he tried to educate me into a world of technology he took for granted. He has already shed many skins and, as I see him waiting for me, so confident now, I have one of those tiny waking up moments, a sort of deep time sense of awe of the truth of that contention that, we are all just one life cycle coinciding with one period of history. Whether we are soldiers or mothers with sons, the future and what it holds remains a mystery. But for now, in this present, in Euston Station, there is just me, a mother, having to run to keep up with the long legs of my son as he strides into his new life and his future. Before the others came. Daddy deedly deed and jigged into the front room to make me laugh in my pram. Mammy posed me, age two, dressed up in tull and ballet shoes for a photographer from the Echo. They called each other hun, divined pictures from clouds and glanismole. You see the owl there, the bull, you see? And before the others came, glass animals on a coffee table, a red deer, Blue monkey, green horse, yellow fish. Daddy told me stories about when he was a little boy or about Tarzan and the impies.
half asleep in the auditorium. I would watch them on stage, all sequined up, far away. I had blue eyes, a trike, a royal blue dress with a Peter Pan collar, a pep mouse in a biscuit tin. And there was a fairy doll stitched onto my ballet dress. Before ye were born, sisters, I was there on my own with them. Cloud readers, film stars. On this morning's programme, we heard Tomas by Ferdia Makana. And from the Miscellany Recent Archive, An Epiphany in Chalk Biddy Ned by Connell Hamill. When Nudity Didn't Have Coaches in the Rehearsal Room was by Emer O'Kelly. And then another script from the recent archive, Family Matters by Nolig Rowan. Train Stations and Mothers with Sons was by Olive Travers. And Before the Others Came, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. The music was Hello, I Must Be Going by Groucho Marx. Life on Mars by David Bowie. The King's New Clothes by Danny Kay. Heart Like a Wheel by Kate and Anna McGarrigal. And Dedicated to the One I Love, sung by Linda Ronstadt. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And to listen back to this week's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or take a look at the website rte.ie slash radio1 slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.